everybody. It's the Sun Also Rises radio show. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, and on the episode today we'll talk about a few recent findings in science that provide confirmation of an ancient authority. For the first segment, and for his debut on The Sun Also Rises, we'll go to Christopher Eames. There are several fields of science that, surprisingly for some, have a good deal to say about the biblical couple Adam and Eve, a story that is held by many, even some Bible believers, to be simple myth. The fields of genetics, biology, and archaeology all have contributed to actually help prove the Genesis account of creation. One significant area of proof is in genetics. Now, geneticists have actually proven that all humans descended from just one man and just one woman in relatively recent history. This isn't pseudoscience. This is an established, well-known, scientifically accepted conclusion. This has been proven by tracing and sequencing the mutations of mitochondrial DNA, which links female lineage back to a mitochondrial Eve, and the Y chromosome, which links male lineage back to a Y chromosome Adam. Both of these are considered humanity's most recent common ancestors, and scientists believe that they must have lived around 200,000 years ago or including the margin of error between 50,000 years and 600,000 years ago. Now, it is a stunning admission by evolutionary scientists that all humans descended from just one woman and man in relatively recent evolutionary history, considering that we're told our earliest human ancestors emerged about 2.5 million years ago. So, how do scientists explain it? The general answer is that some catastrophe, quote-unquote, caused the human population to bottleneck, i.e. in the form of a volcanic eruption or a meteor striking the Earth. This, we are told, left very few survivors on the planet. There were a small number of humans, and in time, the female descendants of all but one woman died out, as well as the male descendants of all but one man, carrying all other unique genetic material to the grave. Thus, the genetic material of only one so-called lucky mother and lucky father continued. Such an assessment is extraordinary, really, that after two million years plus of human evolution, not including prior common ancestors, our human race, we are told, would narrow down to just one single male lineage and one single female lineage, somewhere in the realm of 200,000 years ago. That's certainly quite a bottleneck, and the explanation really defies logic. But there is new research claiming that mitochondrial Eve and Y-chromosome Adam are actually far younger than the generally accepted date of 200,000 years ago. This is based on the studies of geneticist Dr. John Sanford and Dr. Robert Carter. They write, 
Over deep time, any large population will accumulate enormous numbers of mutations resulting in enormous amounts of genetic diversity. This is a serious problem for evolutionary theorists because it is now clear that mankind is genetically very homogenous. We have very limited genetic variation. They continue, We have been able to reconstruct and publish a very close approximation of Eve's mitochondrial sequence. We found that the average human being is only about 22 mutations removed from the Eve sequence, although some individuals are as much as 100 mutations removed from Eve. The most recent estimate of the mutation rate in human mitochondria is about 0.5 per generation. Thus, even for the most mutated sequences, uh, it would only require 200 generations less than 6,000 years to accumulate 100 mutations. This calculation is based upon the most straightforward application of the molecular clock concept. So according to Sanford and Carter, if we are to abide by a reasonable mutational clock, our mitochondrial mother Eve easily dates back 6,000 years, the exact biblical time frame for mother Eve. That's not to say, though, that mitochondrial Eve has to strictly be Eve herself. Mitochondrial DNA merely points to the most recent common female ancestor, and it could potentially have been one of Eve's daughters or later female descendants. The main point is that this single common female ancestor fits squarely within the biblical time frame for Adam and Eve. They found the same result for Y-chromosome Adam that, based on the most straightforward application of mutation time, this man would fit within the past 6,000 years. Some geneticists have said that Y-chromosome Adam would actually have been uh, on the scene much later than mitochondrial Eve, and this really backs up what the Bible says, because our nearest common ancestor in Y-chromosome lineage would have been Noah. Thus, Noah is our Y-chromosome, Adam, passing his Y-chromosomes onto his sons, whereas mitochondrial Eve would have long predated this, passing her mtDNA through the wives of Noah's sons. That's genetics. What about the biology? Where did Adam and Eve come from, literally? The Bible says that the first man was formed, quote, out of the dust of the ground. What has science shown, if anything, about this? Experts have been able to determine that the human body is made up of 25 elements, every one essential for human life, and every one of these elements is found in the Earth's soil. According to biblical chronology, the statement that man came from the dust of the ground was penned, shall we say, at the hand of Moses about 3,400 years ago. Yet it wasn't until 1982 when it was confirmed that every element in man is found in the soil. And this prompted one scientist to famously remark, quote, the biblical scenario for the creation of life turns out not to be far off the mark, end of quote. And specifically the creation of the woman, you'll remember the biblical account of Eve being made from the man's rib. What on earth could science have to say about this? 
The choice of a rib is very interesting. Scientists have discovered a trait unique to ribs. They actually regenerate. It has been found that if the perichondrium, this is the membrane covering the rib, is left in place, then the rib bone will actually regrow inside of it. The rib is the only known bone to do this. Bone from the rib cage is used by doctors today to reconstruct damaged bone tissue in other parts of the body. And in doing this, one could say that with the use of rib bone uh, in reconstructive surgery, doctors are unwittingly replicating in really a minute way Genesis 2 using a rib to create or more properly complete a human being. The Bible continually affirms the perfection of God's creation. Did God thus intend for Adam to continue throughout life odd-ribbed? Perhaps. But perhaps he deliberately created and used the specific bone that would regenerate itself, thus leaving no imperfections behind. One more key point on the science behind the rib. Bone marrow is one of the key sources for stem cells. These are cells that can convert into all types of cell in the human body, and this enables the creation of a complete human being, i.e. Eve. And the ribcage just happens to be a notably prolific producer of these cells, of these stem cells. Finally, there's the field of archaeology, and we don't have the time to go into this in depth. Suffice it to say that parallel Adam and Eve accounts have been discovered to go back 4,000 plus years. The Sumerians had a 4,000 plus year old account of a lady rib, who is also known as the mother of the living, born to heal the early being Enki. The Assyrians listed a man named Adam or Adamu in their language as either their first or second ruler. The Egyptians believed in a first god and living being whose name was Adam. And he, according to them, emerged from a state of chaos, darkness, a watery abyss. This brings to mind uh, the biblical imagery in Genesis 1 verse 2, the state of the world before the creation of man, that of darkness and a watery abyss. There are many more archaeological parallels to Adam and Eve, including even a possible 4,300-year-old depiction of the couple seated with a snake and a fruit tree on a Sumerian greenstone seal. And speaking of snakes, there's even incredible evidence for the Genesis 3 description of the serpent's curse, God condemning the creature to slither along the ground legless. Science shows that snakes did indeed once have legs and still to this day have the embedded gene for growing them. Only one of the uh, DNA components for doing so is broken, quote-unquote, according to scientists. Any idea why? Scientists have no good explanation, but the Genesis account already provided the answer some 3,400 years ago. All told, there actually is a great deal of proof behind what is so mistakenly considered to be a fairy tale subject by so many. What are the chances that the ancients just happened to get all these things right? The fact that man's genetics do point back to one male and one female ancestor within the last 6,000 years. 
the fact that man's elemental composition actually does match that of the soil that he is said to have come from. That Eve was made from a rib, the ancient symbol of life, the one bone only recently discovered to regrow and to be rich in stem cells, the building blocks of life. That snakes do indeed have the gene for growing legs, only it is broken, cursed, you could say. Just lucky chance that the ancients guessed all of this right? Or, dare we say, in this atheistic world of man-monkeys, could it instead have been divine inspiration by the one who created these things? The account of Adam and Eve that Christopher discussed there is recorded in the biblical book of Genesis, as he said. And Genesis is the very first book in the Hebrew Bible and in the Old Testament. And it's often one that skeptics are quickest to question. Even many Christians can be pretty quick to dismiss a lot of the content of Genesis as myth. But the Adam and Eve account is not the only one in the book of Genesis that recent findings have provided some confirming evidence for. There's also some fascinating and very sobering history recorded in Genesis about the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Around 4,000 years ago, these were thriving cities. Sodom and Gomorrah, along with three other neighboring cities, Adma, Zeboim, and Bela, were collectively known as the Cities of the Plain. They were located on the Jordan River Plain, there in the, uh, the southern region of Canaan. And Genesis 13 verse 10 says, All the plain of Jordan was well watered everywhere, even as the Garden of the Eternal. So that's comparing it to the lush Garden of Eden. And it shows just how fertile and how you know rich with life Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities of the plain were. The first century historian Josephus also wrote about this in his book, The Jewish War. He wrote, It was of old a most happy land, both for the fruits it bore and the riches of its cities. So this region was bustling with life, and it became a real hub of commerce. But the people living in Sodom and Gomorrah and possibly elsewhere in the region, became mired in all kinds of reprobate behaviors. Almost the entire society became hedonistic and perverse, and the people were just utterly uninterested in repenting and living upright lives. The cities became synonymous with shameless sin. Genesis 18 verse 20 records God saying, The cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, because their sin is very grievous. And the account there goes on to show that God viewed these cities as being almost entirely overcome by their reprobate behavior. And it shows that he was planning to destroy them for the refusal of the people to repent. And the patriarch Abraham asked God if he would spare Sodom if they were able to find 50 men who had not given themselves over to sin. And in verse 26, God is recorded as saying, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous men within the city, 
then I will spare all the place for their sakes. And then Abraham says, okay, well, what about for 45 righteous men? Would you spare it for 45? And God says, yes. And then Abraham keeps on presenting lower and lower numbers. You know, would you spare it for 40, for 30, for 20? Finally, Abraham asks, would you refrain from destroying it if there are 10 righteous people found there? And God says, yes, for 10, I would spare the whole city. So there is quite a lot of allowance here, you know, quite an attempt made to find even just 10 people to justify sparing this this uh, region. But Genesis chapter 19 shows that there were not 10 righteous people found. And so the decision was made to make an example of these cities that were so deeply mired in impenitent, shameless sin. There was one family that God decided to spare. That was the family of Lot. But there were apparently only four people. So that's not even half of the number that God, you know, said that he would uh, spare the city for. So the account says that the rest of Sodom and Gomorrah were summarily destroyed. Genesis 19, verses 24 and 25 say, Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. And the account does say that one of these five cities, apparently the smallest one, was spared so that Lot's family would have somewhere to live. That was the city of Bela or Zoar. But Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities of the plain that had previously been so full of life, so full of vegetation and and, uh, abundant waters, they were destroyed in a stunning display of divine power. The passage there says brimstone and fire were rained down out of heaven on them. So that's the account there in Genesis 18 and 19 that Bible readers are well acquainted with. And that destruction is mentioned in numerous other biblical books as well. Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, and Zephaniah all mention it. It's even in the New Testament with Jesus Christ himself mentioning it in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. And then Paul, Peter, and Jude all make reference to it as well. So this is not just some obscure passage in the book of Genesis. It's really mentioned throughout the Old and New Testaments. All of those biblical references, of course, are not enough to stop skeptics from questioning the account. Some say that those cities never existed at all. The author Gary Greenberg is one of the prominent voices making that claim. And then other critics say that if those ancient cities did exist, then it wasn't fire and stone out of the sky that destroyed them, but more likely an earthquake or some kind of other natural disaster. Jean-Pierre Ibou has made this argument in his book, Biblical World and Illustrated Atlas. And there are all kinds of other theories and arguments that dispute that account there in Genesis the account that says the cities were destroyed by fire and brimstone that God rained down on them from heaven. 
But last month, archaeological findings were published that really provide some powerful and very compelling support for this biblical account. And it corroborates the details uh, provided in the scriptures there. Archaeological evidence previously gathered from locations around the Dead Sea had already long shown that civilization in the area came to a really abrupt end around 3,700 years ago or so. And now these new findings from researchers at the Tal el-Hammam excavation site in Jordan say that the cause of that abrupt disaster was something akin to an asteroid explosion. In their excavations there, they found zircon crystals. Zircon is formed under extremely high pressure and high temperatures, such as those that happen when celestial bodies impact Earth. And besides the zircon, these researchers also found small glass beads in their excavations. And these kinds of beads have been found before at known impact sites, both on Earth and on the Moon. So it's compelling evidence that there was an impact there, and that something happened that was similar to a superheated asteroid exploding in the sky, and then being rained down on the Earth and even vaporizing parts of the ground. The researchers gave a presentation about these findings to the annual meeting of the American Schools of Oriental Research. That was in mid-November. And they say that their findings suggest that this high-heat explosion north of the Dead Sea could have instantaneously devastated about 190 square miles in this region. And then there was a related study conducted by atomic energy researcher Samuel Gladstone, which basically shows that an airburst yield of around 10 megatons, if that happened over the northeast corner of the Dead Sea, where Sodom and Gomorrah are believed to have been, um, then that would be enough to produce the damage observed about six miles away at that excavation site at Tal el-Hammam. So there are still many unanswered questions about this and, and still plenty of debate over where exactly some of these cities of the plain were and when the chronology of these events would have happened. But in the broad strokes, these new findings offer compelling evidence showing that something akin to a superheated asteroid explosion of the right size happened around the right time and place to confirm the biblical account there in Genesis 19. The recent scientific findings that we've covered on the show today are just a few of the findings that have been published over the years that offer proof of a wide range of Bible accounts. And there are many other types of proof for the Bible's authority as well. The late Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong wrote about many of these in his powerful booklet, Does God Exist? In that booklet, he spends some time dispelling the notion that Uh, science and true religion are at odds with each other. And he shows over and over again that the findings of true science prove biblical truths about God himself and about so much more. One quote from the booklet says, The Creator begins to be revealed by science and by reason.
This is a booklet that we send out at no charge to you, and it really can clarify your vision and give you inspiration and hope in a way that few messages could. So we'll have a link to that free booklet in our show notes on SoundCloud. And you can also go to thetrumpet.com and click on the literature tab and order your free copy there. I'm Jeremiah Jacques in Edmond, Oklahoma. We're coming to the end of The Sun Also Rises here on KPCG-FM. If you'd like to email any questions or comments to the show, please send those to tsar at kpcg.fm. I'd like to thank Christopher Eames for his contribution to the episode today, and we'll leave you with the words of Joseph H. Taylor Jr., who won the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1993. A scientific discovery is also a religious discovery. There is no conflict between science and religion. Our knowledge of God is made larger with every discovery we make about the world. Thank you.